0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with Southwestern literary legend Richard Shelton about his new book, Nobody Rich or Famous. And on Feeding Our Future, learn how a new generation of Tohono O'odham is looking to traditional foods to revitalize their connection with culture and promote healthy eating. Those stories are next on our Arizona Spotlight. In the words of Richard Shelton, his book Nobody Rich or Famous is the story of a family and how it got that way. Using the handwritten journals of his mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother as guides, the 83-year-old Shelton sought to overcome the failings of memory and explore his family history. The book has been in the works since the 1990s, when Shelton traveled alone to places like Boise, Idaho, and Quincy, Illinois, in search of answers to long-forgotten questions.
1: I just had to wait until everybody was dead before I could write it. I waited a good many years, and... uh, it's not a hatchet job at all. It's, um, it's I think, a very understanding book. The, the weaknesses and the, the problems of my family, like many families, of course. In
0: terms of actual incidents, um, the, it's so tightly written, the beginning. You think you're in for this kind of long, slow story, but actually it skips ahead chronologically.
1: Well, that's because it's told in stories, so that there's very little um, background The background comes through the characters and through the stories and through the setting. Uh, It's uh, a family in the 30s and 40s, but it also goes back to my great-grandmother in the 1870s. And it's based on the journals of three women, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mother. And then also all the stuff they told me, I... I, uh, was very interested and curious long before I knew I was going to write a book. I was uh, taking down stories that my mother, especially my mother, told. And uh, in in the book there's a thing called the amnesia curtain. My uh, mother had the amnesia curtain, that is she could forget anything, and, and usually did, that's how she survived. She didn't remember the bad stuff. And my brother had it too, and he didn't even remember me. At one point, he says, I don't remember you as a child at all.
0: And what about your own amnesia curtain? Does it ever come up?
1: No, I don't have the amnesia curtain, but I know that my memory, like everybody else's, is totally untrustworthy. I do not trust it at all. Anytime I could, I verified everything I wrote by, by checking with family members and with other people, documents, photographs, I have all that. I, I never trust my, my memory. Uh, I've learned from other books not to. One instance, I thought one of my friends had, had died in the hospital, and he turned up in New Orleans after the flood. And I had I sworn he died, but he didn't. And uh, nonfiction, especially uh, memoir work, is your truth, is, is the writer's truth as the writer remembers I don't claim that it's universal truth. It's my truth. It's what I remember and how I felt about it.
0: There's a scene early in the book um, talking about a Christmas that was particularly memorable in your family when your mother and father confronted um, issues of their relationship that uh, had been buried before that. Do you feel like talking about that scene outside of the book, telling uh, our audience a little bit about what you remember from that
1: Christmas? That was my brother and sister and I, I was the youngest. My sister was a teenager. My brother was, at this point, probably 12, something like that. It was Christmas Eve. We always opened our presents uh, on Christmas Eve. In this case, both my parents were getting drunk. Uh, My father was an alcoholic. My mother had very recently started drinking to try to be with him, and uh, that was not a good idea. Uh, so they had a big fight, and he had bought her for Christmas a big box of what uh, full of dishes, a whole set of dishes, beautiful dishes. And um, they had a terrible argument. She picked up a can of condensed milk of cream and threw it at him and bounced it off his head. And he fell to his knees, but he got up again. he wasn't seriously hurt. And then my brother and I, my sister had gone off on a date, and my brother and I stood in the doorway and watched him take each of those dishes out and throw it on the floor and break it. So it was just a very unhappy period. We had other Christmases that weren't that bad.
0: In using the documents left behind by your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother, particularly your great-grandmother, let's say, because you didn't know her in life, Tell me how she was revealed to you. What do you think you know about her now that you didn't know before?
1: Well, I started with a photograph of her, and uh, I was fascinated with the photograph. I then uh, went to uh, one of my uncles, who um, was her nephew. He told me about her. And then I got in the car and drove to Kansas and uh, met a lot of people who knew her. I had a terrible time finding any record of where she lived, except in her diary, which I have, and that was not very conclusive. I've never been able to find her grave, Um, although I spent a lot of time wandering around in graveyards and checking the records. Um, There are some things about her that are elusive. I know she died very young. Uh, I know she worked very hard, Uh, and so did her husband. And um, her first child died at the age of three months, and it would appear from the journal that that was caused by either the flu or smallpox, the time is right, the timing is right, and, and at the same time in the journal I find that uh, my great grandmother, the, the mother of that child was ill for a long time too, so it's quite possible they both had the flu, and, that, and in those days the flu was deadly. The main thing I found out about her was that journal that my mother gave me, and it was a gold mine. They called them diaries, all three women, but they weren't really diaries, they're journals. They're, they tell what the weather was each day, what job, you, what you did. I scrubbed the back bedroom, um, uh, baked um, cookies, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. But it's very revealing because she also talks about what her husband's doing, and her husband was fascinating. He didn't have high culture because he didn't have much education, but he played the fiddle and he wrote poetry. The poetry I quote in the book I quote the only poem I have in the book, <laughs> and it's not very good but but for somebody who worked in the coal mines, I think it's it was quite good.
0: One last question about the book is, how did you choose the title?
1: Well, the title is a line from a poem. I wrote a poem uh, while my father was dying. I was sitting. Beside his bed. I took care of him for three months while he died and uh, And the line is uh, My father went in search of death Like a mole blind and beautiful His life was an unmade bed Nobody rich or famous ever slept there, but the big thing in the book is my attitude toward my father changing as the book progresses. And uh, he was, you know, a problem. He was an alcoholic. Um, uh, We had many, many differences. However, as the book progresses, I begin to realize his value. I
0: spoke with Richard Shelton about his family memoir, Nobody Rich or Famous, newly published by the University of Arizona Press. Shelton will give a talk and a reading at the launch party for the book. Saturday, October 1st, from 4 to 6 p.m. at the University of Arizona Poetry Center. Next, you'll hear the second installment of a nine-part series, Feeding Our Future. It explores innovative work being done to feed families, prepare for climate change, improve health, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. The series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. For more than 4,000 years, the native people who lived in southern Arizona grew and wild harvested everything they needed to survive. But today, the majority of their descendants, the Tohono O'odham, rely on government-sponsored hunger relief programs. A new generation of Tohono O'odham leaders is trying to change that, and Laura Markowitz has the story.
2: Naiona Smith is giving a guest lecture to the University of Arizona's community and school garden class.
3: I'm a proud member of the Tohono O'odham Nation.
2: And she says if you want to learn about Tohono O'odham culture, learn about their food.
3: Temporary beans is the vowel in our language, the O'odham squash, hot. And hoon is the autumn 60-day corn.
2: For millennia, those were the staple crops of the Tohono Otum, beans, squash, and corn. The people farmed and hunted. They also harvested wild foods.
3: The baidach, the saguaro cactus fruit, that's during the monsoon. That's our new year. That's when we have our rain ceremony.
2: Through songs and stories, the Tahana Otham transmitted this traditional knowledge to the next generation. That was how elders taught young people how to survive in the desert.
3: The way of life is our human, I'm really thankful and glad to have that
2: knowledge. A lot of younger people on the nation don't have this traditional knowledge about native foods. They don't feel connected to it.
3: When I was growing up, like, I didn't know about our traditional wild foods and, like, how to go out and harvest them and that. Our traditional beans and the traditional corn and all that, I didn't didn't know.
2: Samantha Felix grew up in a small village on the nation. She says every once in a while her grandmother would take her out to gather prickly pear fruit, or she'd bring home choya cactus buds. Felix says she did not like them.
3: We didn't have a lot of money, so I grew up on commodities.
2: Unemployment and poverty rates are higher here compared to the rest of the state. The majority of Tohono Otham receive the federal government's hunger relief aid.
1: It's pretty hard out there in the nation to get a job.
2: Anthony Sweezy also grew up on the nation.
1: It's either you're working for the government, the police department, or the drug smuggling, or people trafficking, and bootlegging.
2: Almost everyone he knows needs commodities to get by. The Commodity Assistance Program was well-meaning. Tristan Reeder is an expert on the Tohono food system. They saw that there was
4: some nutritional insecurity within the community, and they thought, well, let's help.
2: The Commodities Program came into Native communities around 1961. Mostly it was processed foods, canned soups, white bread, cheese, pasta, cereal. The food might have been free, but the Tahona Otham are still paying a high price for it.
4: In 1960, no Tauna Otham had ever had type 2 diabetes. Now, more than 60% of adults over 35 and children as young as 6 have the disease. Those are the highest rates in the world of any ethnic group. That's been because of this change in diet.
2: Commodities were loaded with fat, sugar and wheat. The Tohono O'odham couldn't process it. They weren't used to it physically, because their staple foods like tepary beans and 60-day corn and mesquite flour
4: actually help regulate blood sugar levels and help prevent diabetes.
2: Even if the people wanted to return to the diets of their great-grandparents, that food wasn't available anymore.
4: In the 1930s, the tribe was growing around 20,000 acres of traditional crops.
2: By 2002 acres, the Tohono O'odham Nation went from almost 100% food self-sufficiency to almost 100% food dependency because of commodities.
4: What ultimately it did is it undermined the local food systems. If someone's handing out free food, you become more dependent on that and there's less of a reason to produce on your own.
2: And there's also less reason to participate in traditional ceremonies, to get ready for the rain ceremony. For example, the Tohono O'odham spend three weeks harvesting the saguaro cactus fruit. That's hard work, and it's hot work out in the desert. The fruit has to be scooped out and boiled down to a syrup. That syrup is then used during a four-day ceremony to call the monsoon rains.
4: If you're not planting your fields, you don't care quite as much if the rains come, and if you don't care as much if the rains come, you're unwilling, perhaps, to do all of that hard work to bring about the ceremony. At the same time you saw a decline in the food system, you saw a decline in the cultural vitality within the community.
1: As
3: the swaro is blooming, some of the, the swaro still have the white flowers on top.
2: That's Jennifer Wan. She works for the nation's cultural center and museum Today, she and her husband and their two young kids are in the Avra Valley. She's teaching a workshop on harvesting saguaro fruit. It's sponsored by the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum.
3: So once those are pollinated, they will close and then the fruit will come underneath.
2: She demonstrates using a long stick. It's made from two saguaro ribs lashed together. One person knocks the fruit off the cactus And she stands underneath with a bucket, and catches it.
3: (laughs) I think you got it. I got it. We like to give thanks for this food. So you're gonna take a little bit, and you're just gonna put it over your heart, and then you can eat as much as you (laughs) want. In the past, it was three straight weeks. Every single family member out there, and it was completely you know, tiresome, but you needed to do it
2: for survival. And nowadays, it's a way to continue the heritage. When she was growing up, Juan learned from an organization called TOCA, Tohono O'odham Community Action. It's a nonprofit that Tristan Reeder co-founded 21 years ago. TOCA has been repopularizing native foods and in the process teaching young people the traditional ways to farm and wild harvest and hunt for their food. One of my cousins,
3: she had a baby when she was very young. And when she was the intern at Toka, they took her out and they taught her how to hunt for rabbits and how to skin it and how to prepare it. And she made a stew and came over to our house to give it to my dad. And she was like, this was the first time I realized it's okay and I can provide for my family. If you're able to provide for your
2: own family, it's just that much more that you don't have to rely on someone else. The Tohono O'odham Nation is around the size of Connecticut, and it has one supermarket, Abasha's. It's in cells. Toka opened a restaurant right next door. The Desert Rain Cafe serves traditional foods like tepary bean stew and choya bud pico de gallo.
4: Many of the traditional foods can take three, four hours to prepare. You'd say, okay, I'm off of work, it's 530 the kids are home. I've got to feed them. Do I go to the deli at Bash's and get fried chicken and French fries? Or do I go to the Cafe and get tepary bean stew? If you don't have that as an option, you know which way you're going to go.
2: Tristan Reeder says getting native foods back on the plate was only one of Toka's goals. He and co-founder Terrell Du Johnson didn't just want to plant physical seeds, they wanted to seed the nation with young leaders.
4: People who were on our staff as young people are now on the Tribal Council, are now teachers. The head of the tribe's youth services division is a former youth intern at TOCA.
2: And then there's Jennifer Wan. Today, she's on TOCA's board of directors. She says she and her husband, Anthony Sweezy, want their kids to connect to Tohono O'odham culture and food. Toka,
3: they have taken the native foods into the schools, which I think is really cool. And the kids are eating squash
2: and buds, and they're really enjoying it. Their son Daniel is eight. He goes to school in Sells.
1: Indian Oasis Elementary Store.
2: His favorite lunch?
1: Sometimes pizza, what else, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches.
2: Do you ever eat tepary beans?
3: No.
1: If he doesn't know what it is, he won't eat it. And yet it'll be traditional food.
3: It doesn't have the same flair as pizza. It doesn't have the same flair as chicken nuggets at McDonald's.
2: Well, vegetables in general are going to be a hard sell for kids. Daniel's father says the more traditional foods are offered, the more likely Daniel and his friends will try it. His parents believe it's important not just for his health, but for his sense of identity as Tohono O'odham. There are no traditional songs for chicken nuggets, but there are songs and legends about tepri beans. They hope when Daniel looks up at the night sky, he'll think of coyotes scattering white tepri beans to create the Milky Way. They hope that one day Daniel will tell his children those stories and take them into the garden and teach them how to grow. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz.
0: Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. To learn more, visit azpm.org. Tune in next week for Episode 3 of Feeding Our Future. Manzo Elementary School in Barrio, Hollywood, is a national model for school garden programs. It's changed how teachers teach, how students learn, and even what the kids eat in the school cafeteria. The Manzo Model, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you.